Welcome to An Eye for Business, exploring the entrepreneurial mindset of people who are blind or vision impaired. Brought to you in partnership between Blind Citizens Australia and Vision Australia. Hello and welcome to this, the final episode of An Eye for Business. This podcast is brought to you as part of the Eye to the Future project run by Blind Citizens Australia in conjunction and partnership with Vision Australia. We thank all of the participants and all of the people involved in putting this series together. The most recent webinar for the Entrepreneurial Mindset series featured Ross McGregor. Ross comes from Sydney and ran a very successful recording studio for nearly 30 years. Ross, thanks for joining us on this podcast series. It's great to talk to you. Thanks, Vaughan. Yeah, good, good to be with you. You've got a really interesting story to tell, but I'd like to hear a little bit firstly about your background. Where did you come from and where did you grow up? Right, well, I was born in Sydney and um, at the age of eight, I developed uh, detached retinas and uh, pretty much lost all my sight then. And so I, I went from a normal uh, primary school up to the, the School for Blind at uh, Warunga in Sydney. And then um, the school moved to North Rocks in 1962. And at Warunga, just about every student did music, um, whether you're any good at it or not, just, just was just a standard thing that everybody tried to learn an instrument. And then when we went to North Rocks and did our, what was called school certificate then, we had to do six subjects and but we only had a choice of six in the school so and one of those was music so everybody had to uh i remember one of the one of the guys played clarinet and another guy i think did recorder and then a couple or three or four of us on piano so um i did quite well at the music at that stage and i was um doing well at the steadfords and things like that and um when i after i left north rocks i went to north mead high which is about five miles away from North Rocks, and it's a normal-sided kids' school. Uh, at North Rocks, we had 32 students, and at North Mead, we had 1,100. So that yeah, was a big very difference. big big culture shock for me to go there, and I felt very... Uh, at North Rocks, I was I was ducks of the school, but at North Mead, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was a long way from being ducks, that's for sure. But um, So I spent a year there, and I was supposed to go over to... Uh, London to learn, become a physiotherapist. And I had to go on to year 12 and I decided that I didn't want to do that. Um, One day my mother was telling me how uh, when a woman is pregnant that the baby moves inside the tummy. And at the thought of that I fainted. And so I thought well probably a medical career is not for me. So I gave up the uh, physio idea. And I left, uh, so that would have been the end of 66. <clears throat> and so then I just started uh, playing in Sydney. Uh, I played the accordion. I had an electronic accordion and called a transaccord. Some of your listeners might, might remember that instrument. Mm, I've and, seen mm, and um, piano. And so I, uh, I got gigs playing at, uh, you know, house parties and a little bit of restaurant work and things, and then I formed uh, a trio, 
with two two sided fellows. Or oh, actually, no, there was one. Actually, our drummer was blind as well. Uh, a fellow called Ettore Cipollone. Uh, he joined us later on, and so uh, we we got known as the blind band <laughs> by everybody, even though the lead singer he wasn't blind, and uh, he's a very good singer. Yeah, he's very good at at working with the audience and. And uh, we got quite a lot of work uh, playing restaurants and functions. And and um, I remember I was working at a, a restaurant called The Bar Roma in Parramatta. And uh, it was quite an exclusive Italian restaurant. And the owner there did not like me bringing the guide dog into the restaurant. And um, he then, so he put us off. He said, I can't have you coming here with your dog. I said, I'm not going there without my dog. And... Uh, I then went down to the Musicians' Union and uh, tried to get them to act on my behalf, but they they didn't do anything. Well, they were quite ineffective. So I was working around Sydney with the with the trio doing these gigs, and but I, I decided that uh, I really wanted to get into recording, mainly because I wanted to work in music, but not so much on stage. Mm. Um, I felt. In the recording side, you're very much involved in playing and arranging music, which I was arranging I was quite interested in. And, um, and of course, mixing. And so that's what that musical background sort of led me to, thinking, well, uh, I would rather try and get a studio going. Uh, and I still, did, I still did the playing of the gigs for a while after that point, but uh, I eventually phased that out because... It just became less attractive to me, I think, and you know you've got to do a lot of what you might call hack gigs. You're just sort of playing the same old songs over and over again, and you know towards the end of the night everybody's getting drunk, and then the whole vibe changes, and you know all that sort of stuff. And I, I was more a musician, and I was into the music, I think, and wanting to you know make good music. So that's what prompted me to go towards the studio. Well, let's talk about the studio. We've uh, had quite a few musicians and um, music-related people in this podcast series, but uh, tell us about, particularly when you started, what working in a studio was like and why you thought it was the business for you. Well, in those days, a studio consisted of two rooms. Uh, One room was called the control room, uh, where you had all your equipment, and the other room was the studio and there was a, a big window between the two, so it, like a normal uh, sighted engineer could look through the window and you know, see the musicians in the other room. And the two rooms were soundproof, so uh, in my studio I could have a quite a loud heavy metal band playing in the studio, but you couldn't hear a thing in the control room because we had like double uh, walls, uh, floating floors, and we had triple glazed windows and all sort of stuff. So, But you, you had that kind of configuration, so you sat in the control room, and the musician, the band or the singer would stand in the studio and, you know, you'd uh, connect up a microphone. <clears throat> in those days, I was recording on a, a tape machine. It was called a 24-track tape. And the machine was about the size of a washing machine. And then I had a mixing console, which was a, a desk. It was about two metres long. And it was uh, covered in knobs and buttons. There about 2,000 knobs and buttons on, on that. So that was the main pieces and so <clears throat> you would have people coming in to record for all different uh, sorts of purposes you might get a band coming in making a little demo tape 
to try and promote themselves. So you might have songwriters coming in, uh, making demos of their songs, or you might have people doing albums, uh, or we did quite a bit of spoken word recording. You know, you might have someone running uh, Spanish lessons or, or kids' lessons and they want to record the whole lot onto a cassette or CD. And so I thought that that really appealed to me and that I could handle that because, uh, mainly because of my musicality, I suppose I had, I had very good, well, I still have very good ears, I have a perfect pitch and um, I have quite a good knowledge, you know, of music styles and, you know, what is appropriate to a style and what isn't and I, I just felt I could apply that and, and I wasn't afraid of the technology in the recording side of it, um, that was quite a learning curve. But uh, I just felt, yeah, that um, I could make it work. So how did you learn the technology? I mean, particularly in those days, we're talking about the early 1970s, there wouldn't have been an awful lot of uh, education opportunities available for blind people, um, either at uh, blindness organisations or anywhere else in terms of using that equipment. Did you have someone take you through it or did you just pick it up um, through experience? Well, I just picked it up. Uh, There's a couple of very good magazines at the time, which, of course, were only available in print. Uh, one was called Studio Sound, and one was called Recording Engineer Producer. So I'd get those every month, <coughs> and uh, I would have had a volunteer reader who would read articles to me. And then also I'd talk to other various technicians in Sydney, particularly fellows who came out and did maintenance work in studios or... Uh, fellows who actually set up a studio, you know, I'd wire the whole place up. And um, I, I connected with a couple of them and just talked to them, asked a lot of questions. And because uh, and, uh, I was very interested, so I think when you're very interested in something, you know, your focus is really quite strong on it. Mm. And um, I read a lot of articles and just asked a lot of questions. When I didn't know something, I'd ask a friend, what does that mean? Or, you know, why do they do that? And um, so I learned through that. Uh, I think probably my principal way of learning, yeah. But uh, unfortunately, back then we didn't have, like these days, you've got all those magazines online and that's much easier to do a lot of reading, a lot of tutorials on YouTube and yeah. know, all that. So it's a whole different world now. So Absolutely right. What were some of the issues that you faced um, as a blind person when you started your business? Well, I think... Um, or finding a, a, a building, a suitable building that we could renovate. So we found one of those. This is in Cogra in Sydney. And then um, organising the finance, you know, having to organise mortgages and properties and things and uh, uh, that side of it. And and then uh, I had my father and my brother come down. They helped a lot in the actual building of the studio. Uh, and I contacted a, an acoustics consultant um, because we're... My studio was was right under the flight path from oh, the airport, wow. so um, <clears throat> and it was on a busy road. So we had to design it uh, to keep that noise out. So that's why we had floating floors um, for the two rooms. It was like a concrete slab that's jacked up on a bunch of rubber blocks, and it's kind of floating on the blocks. And um, <clears throat> so he, the the acoustics part of it was very important in in um, the design and the building of the studio. So I suppose they were the main factors and it wasn't so much a musical thing, you know, it was more the building and the finance and then 
with the equipment, just picking out the equipment uh, that I could afford at the time, you know, that um, mm-hmm. to get started with. So, and with, with the technology, like <clears throat> as you say, with that analog equipment, the only real issue I ever had with it was just reading levels on, on the meter. You know, I could operate the twenty-four track on the console, even though when people look at the console, of course, it looks very complicated, you know, because there's a couple of thousand knobs and buttons on it. Uh, but they don't realise it's just the one channel repeated 36 times, you know. Mm-hmm. So. But um, it was only really the levels, uh, reading the levels uh, on the meter, so you make sure you're not recording too high and going over the above the zero and distorting. And the other issues in the early days was splicing tape. We, we used to mix onto a quarter-inch tape, and so you'd have to sometimes cut that up and if you wanted to remove a section uh, so I, I had an editing block which is quite good I could layer the two bits of tape in there and run a razor blade across it at an angle in like in a groove and then put the um, the uh, editing or the adhesive editing tape across that to hold the two bits together but I'd say that that and the levels were the really only two technical issues mm. uh, but of course today with computers you know I mean, in the early days, the computers was horrendous, but uh, these days it's getting better. But um, dealing with that whole software world and all that, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's another, we'll, another story. We'll, we'll move on to that shortly because that uh, you you worked right through that <coughs> whole change from um, digital to an, uh, from analog to digital, and I think it's a really important thing to focus on. But what about things like? Um, your clients and you know getting people in marketing your business how did you need any help with that or did you find that uh, just worked by reputation um well in the early days i was just working by myself i i I got a secretary in later probably i don't know three four years later and uh, she was part-time she'd come in say two days a week and help with the office work i mean when i started i was using the perkins you know for for making notes and keeping lists and things, and then I upgraded to the Eureka. You remember the Eureka? Mm. <laughs> upgraded, and that was a big step forward. But um, now a lot of it was word of mouth um, and just ringing people, you know, that I knew. Just so I suppose just telephone marketing, I'd ring up people and tell them I was there. And uh, I remember the first band I recorded, they were a punk band called the Automatics, and uh, they came in. And the, the manager came to the studio and I had a look and he said, um, um, so you've done this sort of band before? I said, yeah, no worries. Which I hadn't. I hadn't done any <laughs> band at all. But I, I just said, yeah, because I knew I could, you know, and I just mm-hmm. said, yeah, it's no worries. And so they, they were happy. They came back two or three times, you know, to do various demos. And, and um, <clears throat> I think it was more telephone-based, just ringing people and letting them know I was there. And uh, that was the main, I think, marketing. Mm-hmm. And then just word of mouth. And did you have any negative attitudes about your blindness from either clients or people around you? Well, you wouldn't know if you had it from clients because if they had a negative attitude, most times they wouldn't turn up or they wouldn't book you. Uh, but people that came there, uh, no, I, I had no sort of, I can't remember any kind of like aggression towards me or kind of, you know, doubt or they either. Once they were there, they'd already they'd really made a kind of a, a bit of a choice to be there mm. and, and record. But, you, of course, you don't know how many people didn't come out or didn't didn't book you because they found out you were blind and thought, oh, no, well, you know, how, how could he do that? But um, 
I um, <clears throat> I think on the other hand too, it, it like I, I had um, I had two uh, fellows come to the studio one day, and they were in the studio, and I was in the in the control room, and I could hear them. You know, I had microphones on in the room, and there was a new bloke. That's his first time there, and then another bloke had been quite a few times. And the new bloke said, uh, "The fellow running the studio is he blind?" And the other bloke said, "Yeah." And the, and the first bloke said, "Is he any good?" And um, the other bloke said, "Yeah, effing good ears." <laughs> so uh, I got known as Mister Effing Good Ears for a while. <laughs> and, uh, but it's just, um, you know, I think if you come up with the goods, if people are happy with the work, at the end of the day, and if they enjoyed working with you, like as a person, um, <clears throat> I think, yeah, the blindness thing, some some people it was a bit of a mystique thing, you know, like the Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles kind of, um, you know, routine or vibe that goes around that, you know, all blind people are great musicians and all sort of stuff. So mm. sometimes that effect, I think, apply. But no, I, I didn't strike, because people, I don't think people would say, you know, people might ring you up, but they wouldn't say to you, Oh no! Well, I don't. I've heard that you're blind, so we won't come out there. They just don't say anything to you. You know, they just don't book you or or go somewhere else. So, um, but no, I didn't strike any. You know, um, well that I was aware of any any discrimination there. Yeah. Mm. But I'm sure I'm sure it was there. You know, I, I know when I left, I was working. Uh, if I had a, I went did a couple of years. When I was working as a musician, I did a couple of years at the Institute for Deaf and Blind Children. I was doing public relations work there. And then I decided to leave and go and start my studio. And uh, the head of the of the company, Mr. Stan Swain, said to other people, oh, he won't last long, he'll be back. And I haven't mm. gone back since 1974. So, yeah. So you get that, you know. So. And moving on a little bit in time to, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, when computers were starting to become a thing, did you use digital oh, prior P to using computers? or the did PCM. you? Yeah, the PCM recorders. PCM, yeah. Yeah, mm. um, yeah we, we switched. We used to mix onto quarter-inch tape, and then we mix, went to uh, Sony PCM 501, and then we went to uh, DAT tape, and then we went to uh, mixing on an Akai four-track recorder which was synced up, you know, to the 24-track machine. So, yeah, I went through, went through all the different uh, phases of mastering, that's for sure, yeah, over, over the time. Mm. And when you started using computers, which uh, I understand you did sometime around the early 90s, I mean, you know, what a huge uh, and, I guess, amazing thing for musicians and recording artists, you know, to be able to have a full orchestra and a full band at your fingertips. But how was that for you? Well, it was very difficult. Um because in those early stages, the access technology was very poor into the software, uh, unless you wanted to use, you know, you had a very limited choice of what recording program you used. Um, but the one that I used and I wanted to stick with was Cubase, and uh, Cubase is very unfriendly to blind people, but it's a very good program. So I, I then employed an assistant engineer uh, in the 90s, and his or his or her job was to uh, learn the computer software, uh, as well as just helping around the studio. Um, because there's no way that I could have used a computer because the 
screen reader software, and that was so, you know, basic. Um, so I had, I had an assistant there to operate the Cubase for me. Mm. Were there any other times that you had to get people in to help you with different uh, different tasks? Well, no, you'd have fellas come in doing maintenance on your equipment, maintenance on your 24-track and your console, or people making up. Uh, you need cables and that made up, or little, you know, little switcher boxes and things made up for different jobs. Um, but no, I think apart from the, the assistant engineer... Um, that was about it, I think. I'm just trying to think of if, if I've forgotten somebody. But. What about more recently, now that uh, we do have options for recording uh, accessibly on computer, is that something you've got into in more recent years? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I sold my studio in 2000 and moved out of Sydney and I got more into Cubase and I bought a couple of like remote control units uh, which help with the software, but I also <clears throat> found a software developer, and he he's right he's writing software for me, which links between the screen reader and Cubase program, and so uh, that gave me a lot better access to Cubase. And and uh, as a matter of fact, he he left me about three four years ago because he got a real big job at a large company running their internet section, and so. He hasn't only worked for me since then, but I found uh, another fellow about six months ago, and he's now writing scripts for me using uh, auto hotkeys language, which is the same as the the other fellow. So he's now doing that for me, and that gives me access to a lot of things. It's a, it's a very good program, auto hotkeys, um, and access to more plugins and more features of plugins. And I, in the future, I'd like to upgrade my recording program maybe to the latest version of Cubase or there's another one called Mixbus which I'm uh, very, I think it's one of the best sounding recording programs I've, I've ever heard so I may look at that and but I certainly would need this fellow to write scripts for me to to find ways to link between the uh, music program and the voice so it's it's um you know still still it's a big effort you know to access the the software, uh, I'm, I'm running, you know, quite a few plugins these days and instruments with uh, with Cubase, so uh, I'm very happy with the, the system I've got and, you know, it gives me the tools I need to do what I want to do, but it, um, there's a fair bit of fiddling around with, you know, the getting the scripts written to, to uh, link between Cubase and the uh, talking voice. Mm. You ran your studio commercially and very successfully for quite a long time. What were some of the positive attributes to running your own business, um, especially compared with your previous experience of working for other people? Uh, well, that's a very good question. I mean, there's, you have a lot of stresses running your own business, of course. Let's just say that. And the recording market in Sydney in the 90s got a lot tougher because a lot more people were buying uh, computer systems and putting it in at home and setting up their own little home studios or in their garage, meaning that there'd be less need for a place like mine. And so that affected the, the market quite a bit. And of course, these people, once they set up in their garage, um, doing their own recording, they thought, oh, well, I can record my friends because I'm, I'm a recording engineer. 
So there'd be more work going that way. So it would uh, it would really affect the the uh, studio industry because you know in, th- in, in theory there's less work around because of this home studio phenomenon that was or, or project they call them home studios or, or project studios. Mm. Um, but it was certainly oh just all the you know the general freedoms you have with running your own business, making your own decisions and. Um, just that feeling of expressing yourself, you know, that you want to express yourself through your music or how you promote yourself or how you market yourself. You know, it's just having that, it's good having that freedom, I think. And um, I think I always, I was very driven when I was younger. I didn't want to, a lot of people would say to you, um, when you're blind, oh, well, you can't do much, you know. You've only really got about three or four possible employment avenues, and uh, outside of them, there's not much. And they all just thought, oh, um, you know, you couldn't run a studio, you couldn't run a business for one thing and then to run a studio for another. You couldn't do it. Even my dear old dad, who I love very much, who helped me a lot, I remember about a year later, he said, um, how's the studio going? And I said, oh, it's going well, getting work. And he said, oh, I'm surprised it lasted this long. Even though um, he helped me build it and... He might have thought it was just a fad <laughs> you know, that, mm. that I had. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, a lot of people, and it still happens today, a lot of people just write you off, you know, and just say, well, if you're blind, um, <clears throat> you can't really have much uh, ambition or much sort of hope uh, to achieve a lot of things. You know, you can more or less just exist and uh, do this and that and get yourself some sort of job. Um, and I, I always fought against that. I didn't want to be um, <clears throat> limited uh, by people's views or opinions. You know, I, uh, I, th- I felt I could run the studio and I knew I had the musical um, nous and the ears and everything to do it. And so I was very driven. This is back when I was 22, 23. And um, <clears throat> so I think that's, that's what pushed me towards doing it, to express myself to have the freedom to express myself in different areas and and uh, so that's that's one of the pleasures I think of, of having your own business but as I say on the other hand there's a lot of pressures and stress um, which can be caused by the general economic situation at the time or changes in the market or this sort of thing. And of course employing staff has uh, stresses of its own as well you've got to make sure you're making enough money to pay them and that's right mm. 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 There's been quite a lot of water under the bridge since you started your studio and there's been a huge amount of change in terms of technology. But if you were going to go back and do it again, what would you tell yourself? Well, I would... um, Even though I was very driven in those days, I did have a lot of um, negative thoughts or doubts about myself. You You can have doubts and things, but you can still push on. You know, you can still... I don't know what that is. I suppose you call it hope or something or you know, determination to want to prove a point or something. But even though you're doing that, you still may harbour a lot of uh, doubts about is it going to work or isn't it or am I doing the right thing or should I do this later or now? And uh, But um, but I, I think it's a case of if, if I was doing it these days, well, I certainly feel a lot more p- uh, positive about myself now. I don't, 
I don't think like that now because, but that's because I've got fifty years, you know, experience behind me. Mm. But I, I think really it's, um, you know, you've got to know your work. You've got to know what you're providing for people and uh, what competition there is around who's providing similar work. And, but I think it's very and so, and also work out your pricing, and your service, what service you provide. You know, you might have a, a basic service that you provide, but um, there might be other little services you can provide off that. Like I had a lot of people coming to me who had little uh, micro cassette recorders and they were living at home and they had some doubts about their partner being a bit naughty. So they'd plant the recorder in the room to try and catch some conversations and then if the recording was bad, they'd bring it to me and see if I could try and improve the quality and, you know, and the clarity of the recording. So that's just an example of a different um, market. Not that I chased that market, you know, I didn't start advertising for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> but, but there are different ways you can use a studio. So I'd say just look at what service you can provide, but... I think really the most important thing is just to uh, feel good about yourself. You know, feel that you are uh, a nice person, um, you're well-meaning, you know, you try and do the best all the time for your clients. Uh, you want to help them achieve, you know, their goals or ambitions. You know, you, you try and if you can, you know, get enthusiastic or excited for them and what they're trying to do. Um, just that old... Adage, you know, the customer's always right. You have to give the customer what they want. You can you can advise them. You could say, well, how about if you do it this way or that way? But if the customer says, no, I want this way, well, then you just have to accept it. But, but I think, yeah, just, you know, feeling good about yourself and that you are uh, there to help people. When you're dealing with people is um, just imagine how, how would you want to be, how do you want to be, treated when you're dealing with a company and try and try and be like that to people but yeah it's so important I think just to um, feel good about yourself and uh, you know I don't mean big note yourself and all this kind of stuff but just accept yourself as you are I think one of the things is you know blind people we obviously have to accept our blindness that's the first point and you have to accept what you can do and what you can't do what your limitations are and not feel uh, bad about that or feel that you're lacking or that you're imperfect or whatever, whatever. It's just accept those things and then go from there and you can still have your uh, hopes and ambitions and things you want to do but you just have to uh, accept the limitations you have and then work around them rather than maybe getting frustrated by them or getting you know aggravated by them. But so I think acceptance is a very big thing. Just accept yourself and just know that you are sincere in, uh, in wanting to help people, you know, through your business and that you'd basically just feel good, you know, about yourself. And uh, I think that's quite a, quite a strong point. Mm. I'm a big believer these days in, uh, after my experience of, um, uh, yeah, just feeling good about yourself, you know, because that comes through to people, you know, that, that sort of vibe or energy comes through and um, make sure you learn the, the job you're providing, your services, make sure you learn them and, and um, 
Yeah, and I think if you have that kind of vibe in you, uh, it just comes through to people, you know, and people respond to it. And they, they um, two things that people will say when they walk away is, hey, well, he did a good job, very happy with the job, and he was a nice bloke to deal with. Mm. He's a nice person. They're the two things that people most often remember about you. Um, and you could be a person who does a good job, but you could be a bit of a bastard to work with, and people will say, oh, I don't want to go back there to him. He was a bit bloody cranky or something, or he was, you know, a bit uppity, or we'll go somewhere else. So just um, being that nice person, a friendly person, and, you know, supportive of your clients to help them get what they're wanting to get. And, yeah, I think that's a really important thing. Mm. Well, Ross, thanks for being a part of the program, and uh, best of luck. Thanks, Vaughan. Thanks very much. And that completes this 12-part series, An Eye for Business. This podcast series has been brought to you by Blind Citizens Australia in partnership with Vision Australia and forms part of Blind Citizens Australia's Eye to the Future project. And specifically, it's related to the Entrepreneurial Mindset webinar series. Those webinars are available on the BCA website. I'm Vaughan Benison. It's been a pleasure to have your company across this series. Take care. You have been listening to An Eye for Business, exploring the entrepreneurial mindset of people who are blind or vision impaired. This is a series of programmes brought to you in partnership between Blind Citizens Australia and Vision Australia. Join us again next week.